The following show is for entertainment purposes only. It references research about psychological issues in general, but is not to be taken as professional opinion or diagnosis about the individuals in each case. Neither of the hosts have an established professional relationship with the individuals discussed in these stories, and everything discussed is based on their general professional knowledge, training, and experience. Welcome to Guilty, where we find the why behind the who, what, when, and where. My name is Colin, and tonight I'm going to be joined by David, our licensed professional counselor. Before we get started, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Tonight's episode is very long, so let's keep this short. The first thing I want to do is give a huge shout out and thank you to Tyler from Minds of Madness. As you probably know, if you listen to their amazing podcast, He's the one giving our disclaimer. I think he does a much better job than I ever did. So thank you, Tyler. I appreciate it. The next thing I want to do is I'm going to just shout out all of our Patreon supporters. This is absolutely amazing, and David and I are both very thrilled. So these are in no particular order. But a big thank you to Sandra Tucker, Maggie Rose, Tisha Clark, Ariel Brennan, Stephanie Pedley, Teresa Cochran, Allison Foreman Rickert, The True Crime Fan Club, The Minds of Madness, Spectral Asylum, Rebecca Manners, Nikki Cesarnicki, Pretend Radio, Moms and Murder Podcast, and Julie Banks. You are all awesome. Thank you so much for being so generous. Stay tuned on Patreon to find out about our new perks. Now, if you want to get a hold of us, you can reach us on Twitter at Guilty underscore podcast. You can reach us on Facebook at Guilty Podcast. And you can email us, guiltypodcast at yahoo.com. With that said, let's just go ahead and get David on and let's dive into this episode. There's a lot to cover here. All right, that's David banging something in the background, <laughs> right Right as we're don't, about to get on air. Don't criticize me. I won't. Are we, are we on air? Yeah. <laughs> that's right, I can edit this out. No, I, I think you should leave it. All right, I'll leave it in. All right. Welcome. <laughs> yep, well, there, this is incompetence in all of its glory. Yes, it is. But all hopefully right. what we talk about now, we'll, we'll deviate from that. Yeah, sure thing. So the first thing I was going to bring up was we did this case at a very um, awkward time. It's a hell of a coincidence. Let's put it that way. There's a lot of similarities between what happened in Las Vegas and what Whitman did. 
In fact, the uh, he was on the 32nd floor in Vegas, and the tower is 27 floors, if I'm not mistaken, in Texas. So similar height. Um, the main difference is being, obviously, the number of casualties and the number of injured, and the weapons used would be drastically different. Um, but I thought we could spend a minute just talking about a little bit about the guy in Vegas. I don't even know his name, to be honest, and I'm kind of glad that I don't. Um, yeah. I think that's good. I think it's probably also progress on the part of uh, just how these things are getting communicated. I think one of the things that, you know, being from Colorado that I'm acutely aware of is the nature of copycat crimes. Yeah. Um, and how when things are sensationalized in the media, it increases the chances that similar crimes um, are committed. And that that's really like a real phenomena that actually the mass shooter phenomena is fairly recent. Um, you know, you have Whitman um, a little further back, but the more recent mass shooting phenomena, that's that's most mass shootings have happened in recent history. What is it that makes people want to copycat? Is it just fame attention? I think a lot of these people do have weird lonely social lives oftentimes. And I think that they're often really disconnected. And if you're really disconnected, if you're a loner, um, then I think something like fame and people having to pay attention to you becomes that much more enticing. So if you're well-connected, you have a good group of friends, you're probably not going to be enticed by being elevated in that way. But if you're somebody that's on the fringes, I think that that sort of invitation's a lot more tempting. But what about the people that take their own lives when they do this? I mean, I guess it could be fulfilling something short term, but if they're going to die, they don't actually get to revel in the spotlight, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how much of it's rational on that level. You know, I think some people, you know, it's kind of like people buy burial plots overlooking beautiful uh, mountain ranges. And it's like, well, you're not going to be there for that. <laughs> That's the worst <laughs> comparison. But okay. No, it, it's the same. I mean, people <laughs> still project themselves past their death. Yeah, no, I get you your point. I just, <laughs> I don't know why it's funny to me, but it is. It's like, <laughs> you're not going to be there. Well, I guess right. it's a good point. You're, you're not, right. You're so gonna I'm going to just, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, just throw me in the dumpster. <laughs> so I'm not going to be there. What does it matter? I don't care if I have a burial plot or you just throw my body somewhere. Yeah, good the lights point. are off no matter where they put you. You're always saving money somehow, David. You know that? <laughs> So I think that that's, you know, it might just be a feature of human psychology that it's it's not natural to stop imagining that you're alive even after you're dead. So if somebody's pursuing fame and they're going to be dead for it, I don't think that registers. Yeah. Well, and this is a theme we keep coming back to, which is a lot of times we can't actually know why someone did something. Um, it's not rational. Even if even if we did have a reason it wouldn't necessarily be something rational, right? Yeah, I think there's different types of crimes and different types of rationales. But I think, you know, so I brought up before that a lot of times we try to figure out the mastermind psychology. And oftentimes, instead, you have, especially with violent crimes, most violent crimes are impulsive by nature. So, you know, an impulsive decision rules out a mastermind plot. And then you have people that, if you were to listen to their rationale, it doesn't make sense. In other words, 
you wouldn't walk away from the conversation and say, oh, yeah, those incentives seem to be lining up in the right way. You would still find their thinking to be really demented. Yeah. You'd find, you'd, you'd find their belief system to be abhorrent. So, you know, it's not like in searching for an answer, you're going to find one that satisfies the murder of other people. But you can understand why, given a certain worldview, somebody might behave the way that they're behaving. Yeah. Well, and I think that with this guy here, so far there's no motive uh, that anyone knows. And I don't know if it's because police and FBI are keeping it close to the vest because this goes deeper. You know, something that struck me as odd is the number of weapons that he had. You know, I want to say there's 23 firearms in his room. And he had explosives, a ton of explosives in his car, but they weren't rigged. They weren't ready to be detonated. He wasn't going to use them. The uh, speculation, some of the speculation I read on the interwebs, which, you know, they're always right. They know what they're doing, um, is that maybe he was selling these guns and weapons to someone else. Um, Maybe a terrorist group or something like that. And then you've got the idea that maybe there were supposed to be other people there. Maybe they didn't show up. I mean, I think that Right now, everything is speculation. We can't know anything about it. And unfortunately, it's just, it's a tremendous number of casualties and injured people. And it's just, it's really sad. I mean, that's that's all we can really say about it. I think at this point, that's the only conclusive thing we can say is that it was an awful tragedy. And I'm personally glad he's dead. Whether or not, I mean, I think that's the coward's way to shoot yourself in the head. But you know what? Good riddance. Yeah, I go back and forth on that. Like sometimes I feel like I would rather him live and be locked up. And then sometimes I'm like, what a drain on the taxpayer dollar. This person should stop, you know, being a drag on life. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting. I think a lot of, you know, sometimes with these murder suicides, people have pointed out that, you know, you're in so much pain. The person who's doing it is, is so demented that, you know, they, they, externalize their anger and aggression and then in finding that it doesn't satisfy them that's when they turn and take their own life that sometimes it's calculated but sometimes perhaps the taking of one's life comes from realizing that what you did didn't fulfill you in the way that you hoped that it would and of course you can only speculate about that i mean you're not going to be able you're not going to have the opportunity to have an interview with somebody who takes their own life yeah yeah so we don't know And, you know, that might have been something that went through McDaniel's head, because I think we talked a little bit about that, that you fantasize it and then it happens and you go, wait a minute, this isn't what I thought it would be. And maybe it was his way of doing that. I mean, I I, I guess it this just comes full circle. And I feel like we discussed this on every part two. You just can't know. You'll never know. And even when the killers live and you have the interview on 2020, you don't know if they're being honest. So yeah. even if they were alive to interview them, you don't know if they're being honest. A lot of these people are good liars, so we can't know. Um, so I guess, yeah, I, I, I'm torn. I got to ask you, though. You know, I saw this guy's picture circulating. Cops are kind of upset that it got out uh, of his uh, dead body. And it didn't bother me. You know, uh, I've seen victims. Uh, Sagawa was one of them. Uh, unfortunately I was watching a documentary I had no forewarning, but it like broke my heart and it really affected me. I saw this dude's picture didn't bother me at all. So what is that? Is that something that 
is the is this I mean we talked a little bit about how sometimes your anger towards someone or something can kind of cloud you, right? Yeah, that you're that when you actively seek revenge, it shuts down the empathic part of your brain. Yeah. And conversely, if you feel really uh, bad or you feel a lot of empathy for victims, then generally the natural psychological response is to be harsher towards the perpetrator. I see. So I must like, I mean, I guess for me then I had more empathy towards the victims in this case, right? Yeah. You also brought up the metaphor of like the video that you saw with one dog attacking another and, and you were really angry at the husky yeah, for attacking the other dog. Husky living that little that little poodle didn't do anything. Yeah. And I think me. that maybe that's the same dynamic. It's when you are in touch on an emotional level in a powerful way with the victims, then it's a lot easier to disconnect when the perpetrator is punished or is in pain. Um it's a lot easier to disconnect. It's just yeah. part of human psychology. Interesting. That doesn't mean that it's, I, I also think maybe, I mean, man, you have to look at a lot of nasty stuff doing the research. So you probably also have some degree of being desensitized to some of these things, you know, that you're, maybe you, you don't have the same disgust reflex. Um, you know, because I mean, you've told me some of the stuff that you've accidentally come across. I mean, your browser history is a filthy, filthy thing. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, and only part of that's for the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, there might there might also be a component too that you know you saw something and somebody who doesn't generally have to do the type of research that you do might respond more strongly just because they don't see that sort of thing very often yeah well it was it was um it wasn't shocking to me at all i guess i mean it was what you would expect it to look like when someone shoots himself but maybe that's what it was i i mean i have obviously i have zero sympathy for this guy uh i didn't care and i wanted to talk about it only because it coincidentally fell at the same time, or it happened at the same time that we released an episode um, on a guy who did something extremely similar. The big difference I want to point out here is, in my mind, I think that Whitman is a much scarier individual. And here's the difference. When you look at the Vegas shooting, you have somebody who's using a bumper on an assault rifle, And listen, we're not going to make it political, but assault rifle and rifle, it's the same thing. One's black, looks scary. They're the same thing. So you can go to Walmart, buy a rifle. It'll act the same as an assault rifle. They take the same ammunition, but you're, (laughs) well, just, I I don't want to make it political, but I will. Um, You know, the guy's using the the bumper stock, which essentially turns a semi-automatic, which means that each time you pull the trigger, one round is fired, into an automatic, which means that if you hold down the trigger, um, it will keep firing until it runs out of rounds. So this guy essentially creates an almost automatic weapon, and you can hear it in the videos. And I think that we should go ahead and make those bumpers illegal. I don't see why you would need that. But the, the point here was that here's a guy who fires into a crowd of 22,000 people, that are essentially stuck. They're locked into not necessarily a cage, but if you've been to any concert venue, you know that there's not an easy way out, especially when there's 20,000 people around you. So you're kind of stuck. And he kills 50 people and injures, uh, actually, I think it's closer to 60 at this yeah, point. Uh, I, is it 58? Is that the official number now? I think so. 58 and 500 injured? 
yeah, something like it's it's not exactly 500, but it's yeah. significant. Yeah, a lot more than Whitman. But the difference and why I think Whitman is more scary is Whitman was shooting at a college campus, didn't have 22,000 people even in that area, and still managed to kill 17. And he was so precise that he could hit an individual exactly where he wanted at 500 yards, and he was using a bolt-action rifle. Now, a bolt-action rifle means that he has to actually manually eject the cartridge after firing a round and then reload another cartridge. So he didn't have the luxury of what was essentially an automatic weapon. Now, it's not... Nobody's glorifying either of these people. They're both monsters. I guess to me, though... Whitman is a much more interesting and scary monster because he didn't just use a bunch of high-powered weapons to take out people who were caged. He was very precise in what he did. So let's, yeah, I I also ahead. think you know back to what you'd mentioned about even if you have somebody that's giving you the motive for what they're doing, one they could be liars. But in in the other case, and I think as it relates to Whitman, Whitman people have speculated that he might not even truly understand his own motive. So, you know, I don't know if you want to jump into the autopsy and what was found, but I think that it's very difficult too to compare the two shooters because we know we have autopsy reports on Whitman and it might be that he was behaving in the way that he was behaving, not because he was antisocial, uh, although, you know, we don't know, but it could have been because of the position of the tumor that was discovered in his brain. Yeah. Well, let's jump to Whitman. Uh, we'll let the, the Vegas guy, we, we don't know anything about him. They're still doing their investigation. It'll probably be years before we actually learn what may or may not have been his issue. And it very well could have been a brain tumor. But for Whitman, we know that he had a brain tumor and... We know a lot about his history, about his past, and we know a lot about him at this point. So let's focus on Whitman, and we'll go ahead and start. So we know that in his childhood, you know I always like to go to the childhood. I always like to start in the early years. So his dad was abusive. Um, his dad was abusive towards both he, his brothers, and his mom. So he was a real... He was really just a dick. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. I, I really hate his dad. And interestingly, I almost find myself a little more sympathetic with Whitman than any other person I've covered. And I think it's maybe due to his childhood and partly due to the brain tumor. Not that I would excuse what he did, but maybe that I can go, you know, I wish that you didn't have that childhood because maybe this wouldn't have turned out the way that it did. So generally speaking... You've discussed this before, but can you tell us a little bit about how a person who's abused as a child might respond later in life? Yeah, I mean, so people look at the research on this differently. And, you know, the common story that you hear is that if you're abused when you're a child, you don't have the opportunity to learn how to regulate your emotions. So your parents are the people that are supposed to teach you how to regulate your emotions. You know, when you get really upset, irritated, um, when you feel really sad, it's supposed to be your parents who come in and teach you how to soothe. They soothe you, and then eventually they teach you how to self-soothe. And so when you have a parent that, one, doesn't teach you how to self-soothe, 
and actually is the reason for your emotional pain, then it makes sense that you might find a developmental trajectory in children who are abused that includes people who don't know how to self-soothe as adults, don't know how to, you know, when you think about when you have a really hard day, sometimes you just have to sit with those feelings and wait for them to pass before you make any big decisions. And so for kids that aren't taught how to soothe and their parents are the reason for their suffering, oftentimes you, you know, the theory goes that you have adults who are that much more out of control from an emotional standpoint. There are other people theorize that who theorize that, you know, when you have parents who beat up each other or beat up kids, that people develop this belief system that is more or less, you know, this caveman morality, this, you know, might is right. Whoever's bigger wins. And so that's the tool for conflict resolution. Um, you don't see parents work things out calmly. You don't see compromise. You don't see negotiation. You don't see any of these tools that are needed to help resolve issues. And so, you know, if you're taught to swing a hammer and that's the only tool you're given, then you swing it all the time. So I would say those are the two main theories. The problem, of course, is that, so if you take twin studies and you have one kid who's raised in a home where there's abuse and the other who's raised in another home where there's no abuse, the kid who's raised in the other home who hasn't witnessed any abuse is still more likely to be abusive. And the reason that uh, neuroscientists think that this is the case is because you have a genetic inheritance that uh, affects your degree of impulse control. And so impulse control is a higher order, uh, more sophisticated brain process um, that's primarily found in the prefrontal lobe, <clears throat> which is the front of your brain. So, you know, it's a higher order brain process. And basically that's something that you can inherit. So if your parents had a brain that struggled to interrupt violent impulses, there's a good chance you're going to have a brain or there is a chance that you're going to have a brain that also struggles to do that. So in homes where there are twins, one's removed, the one who doesn't experience any domestic violence is still statistically more likely to engage in similar behavior than a control group. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's not all nature versus nurture. I mean, it's a combination of nature versus nurture. Yeah, it's nurture and nature. Um, but nurture can be, or sorry, nature can be really influential. Yeah. And so, you know, it could be that you have a certain potential and you really have to push back against what feels natural to you, even if that's not modeled in your home. Yeah. And the same is true if you think about people who, you know, have alcoholism in their family. You know, if you are raised out of the home and you drink and your dad had a drinking problem and your mom had a drinking problem, you're going to respond differently to alcohol. You know, so it's it's not just that seeing it in the home is is the determining factor. Yeah. There's multiple factors that, that influence who we become. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So... So there, there, there could be two things then. So Whitman's dad could have very well had an abusive father. I don't know. I didn't go that far back. And this could have just been in his genetic code. 
and Whitman himself could have carried some of these genes regardless of the fact that his father was abusive. But what we know then in this case would be that it's likely both in his case. Uh, so Whitman not only saw it in the home, which would be the nurture side, but the nature side would be the genes that his father gave him. So he might have already been violent or somebody in that situation where there's both could potentially um, have that characteristic. So, yeah, I can't speak specifically to Whitman's characteristics, but I can say that in general, what you find with people who witness domestic violence is that it's a heritable, to some degree, it's an inherited quality. And unless people work really hard not to demonstrate that behavior, oftentimes the momentum of their environment and of their genes leads them to perpetuate it. So now tell us a little bit about that, though. Now, when you say they're, they're working against, so you'd be going against yourself almost, right? Because everything in your body is going to be saying to do or act one way right? To do one thing or act one way. But you'd ideally want to be almost the opposite, right? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I kind of think about it like this. You can take any inherited quality, take something like depression or anxiety. And that's something that if your parents struggle with it, you know, there's an increased chance that you're going to. And those emotions happen to you. And I think that that's a really important thing to kind of think about that emotions are things that happen to us. They're not things that we choose. You know, we're all downstream to our mental health. You know, nobody says, man, okay, I'm just going to stop being depressed. You know, when people go ask, you know, why are you depressed? Oftentimes that's a really frustrating question for somebody who's depressed because there isn't anything happening in the environment that they can attribute their feelings to. They just feel depressed. Yeah. And the same is true with anxiety. If you ask somebody who's anxious, hey, why are you anxious? And they say, I don't have a reason. And then someone will say, well, there must be a reason. And it's like, well, you're making me anxious now. I mean, I don't have, <laughs> I don't have a reason. Yeah. And, and it's true. People who struggle with depression and anxiety, they don't, there is no reason. It's, the reason is that they're downstream to their mental health. And they're doing their best to wade through um, the situation neurochemically. And so, you know, I think that's true with a lot of human qualities that we're downstream to much of what we inherited. And part of being good for one another is learning how to act against the grain, is learning how to say, I'm not going to let that emotion uh, affect how I behave towards people that I care about. And it's identifying our mental health, our inherited mental health, and, and then making a decision about it. But I think, you know, the idea that emotions happen to us, I mean, that was something that I didn't really put in those terms for, you know, probably, I mean, it, maybe I started thinking in those terms five years ago. And it's not that I was unsympathetic to people who were having a difficult time emotionally. But when you start to understand that people are just really wading through um, a series of causes that are outside of their control that eventually lead to how they feel. It opens a window of compassion where you can start to 
no longer blame people for what they do, how they feel, what they think. And it, it gives you an opportunity to meet them in that struggle. So let's move on with Whitman specifically. And let's talk a little bit about the tumor because I feel like this is going to be the biggest thing that differentiates him and a lot of other criminals. So can you tell us a little bit about the brain itself and how a brain tumor might affect someone, just even generally speaking? Yeah. So a few things to put out there first about the brain. And I'm not a neuroscientist. I want to put that out there. It drives me crazy when therapists posture as neuroscientists, but I'm going to do it anyway. So hopefully that disclaimer will absolve me of, of some sin. Um, so there's certainly a lot of people who know more about this than I do, but here's some general things to think about. So the brain evolved from the back to the front and from the bottom to the top. And in the very back of your brain, that's the most primitive and least sophisticated part of your brain. And then as it evolved towards the front, it became more sophisticated and it started to influence, you know, the basic processes that we consider to be human. So you can think of the brain in like three different divisions. There's the hindbrain, which is the very back, the midbrain and the forebrain. And then as it evolved, it, it became, it was cognitively primitive and it moved to being cognitively elaborate. So a lot of our difficulties and emotions that we experience is that you have a less sophisticated part of the brain coming into conflict with the more sophisticated part of the brain. And so even in our own emotional difficulties that are more normal range, a lot of times when we don't understand why we feel the way that we do, it's because we're downstream to these uh, interhemispheric conflicts. We're downstream to these brain processes that are oftentimes working together, but oftentimes working against one another. And so the amygdala is the place that Charles Whitman had a tumor. Um, and the amygdala is a, a really interesting part of the brain. So it's found in the temporal lobe, which is like behind your ear uh, or behind your ears. And so if you were to imagine a line that goes you know, into your eye and then through your ear, that's where the amygdala is, that's that intersecting point. So the amygdala is small. And it looks like an almond. Amygdala is uh, Greek. Um, it means almond. Really? And, yeah. Oh, wow. And um, so the amygdala is interesting because sensory information comes in from the outside and runs through the amygdala. And then the amygdala creates certain outputs depending on what comes in. So, and I'll kind of, let's put a bookmark in that real quick. So the easiest way to think about the amygdala is that it's responsible for two different things. The first thing is threat detection. So it's responsible for detecting threats that are in the environment. So anytime there's something that's happening wherever you are that might be potentially threatening, it's the responsibility of your amygdala to collect that sensory information and to determine whether there's a threat. So people who have really strong startle reflexes, you know, you hear a loud noise and you look really quickly, that snapping and orienting yourself to the environment 
that's coming from the amygdala. That's saying, what is that over there? Assess if there's a problem. And then the other role of the amygdala is the response to that threat. So uh, you can think of that in terms of, and many people have heard this, you know, that fight, flight, freeze response. So your brain collects sensory information. It orients itself to the environment. And then it determines the best way to enhance the chances that you'll survive. Let me tell you something. Yeah. I'm pretty sure my entire brain is one big amygdala. (laughs) Because that's, uh, you know, when it's all anxiety, all nervousness, that's Mm -hmm. it. There's a giant amygdala. So maybe mine's just giant. That's all. Maybe it's just really big. (laughs) Well, so I think maybe this will illuminate um, part of your experience. Because the amygdala can play a role in issues like generalized anxiety disorder. So if you have generalized anxiety disorder, um, that's characterized by just kind of a chronic worry. Yeah. And so what happens, the neuroscientists um, theorize that what's happening in that case is that your amygdala overreads threat in the environment. So it looks out into the environment, it receives sensory information, and where most people see a stick on the ground, it sees a snake, right? Where, where most people see a calm environment, it sees a calm before the storm. Yeah. And so what happens is it sees ghosts in the environment, and then it sends the message to your amygdala, hey, there's threatening stimuli, even when there's not. And then the other thing that that generalized anxiety disorders characterizes muscle tension. So, you know, a lot of people will feel stiffness in their neck and their back and their chest. Well, the reason for that, according to this theory, is that once the environment is determined to be a threatening place, that freeze mechanism is deployed. And the tightening of your muscles is a result of that freeze mechanism. So, you know, you look in the environment, there's nothing to fight. You look in the environment, there's nothing to run away from. And so what your brain says is, okay, don't move. And so you're you're receiving messages from the survival part of your brain that's saying there is a threat, but we can't detect it. So the best strategy is not to move. And of course you disregard it because you have things to do in your life, but your body is responding through that muscle tension. And it's, it's saying, okay, we're going to try to survive here. So people that have generalized anxiety disorder, you're literally pushing through a survival response on a moment-to-moment basis. And that's why it's so uncomfortable and that's why it's so painful. And so the other part of that is the amygdala also sends certain outputs um, neurochemically. So if the amygdala determines there's a threat in the environment, cortisol gets dumped into your system. Cortisol is the neurotransmitter uh, that is basically stress. So the other thing that cortisol does, which is really interesting, is that it clots your blood. So just in case you're punctured, it increases the odds that you will bleed out slower. So you have these, you have cortisol dumped into your blood, you can have um, adrenaline uh, dumped into your blood. And so your body just feels like it's on fire. So in issues like generalized anxiety disorder, they do think the amygdala plays a role. And that role is that it over-assesses threat and then deploys the only survival strategy that it thinks might fit the problem. And then the person experiences 
the pain of that survival strategy um, in their daily life. What a stupid, stupid design. I swear the human brain has got to be an alpha state, you know, like was programmed, kind of worked on it, you know, not not quite finished yet because that's a really I mean, I, I get what you're saying. And I'm, I'm being sarcastic when I say that. But yeah, I, I think that interestingly, I think we've almost advanced too fast, right? Like technology and our situation on the planet is too good for our brain. Well, I think it's it's the by you know, Charles Darwin said we bear the stamp of our lowly origin. And so I think that through natural selection, we've made certain adjustments that have benefited our survival. But that doesn't mean we're fine-tuned machines. You know, if you think about the fact that we breathe through the same cavity that we also eat, that's not a great idea, right? That leads to that that's why the choking happens. Well, you're talking right? about if, mouth breathers, but the people that breathe through their nose, not necessarily the same, right? <laughs> well, you could still choke. <laughs> that's true, I guess. So, so you know, and or think about something like an appendix. You just don't need it, right? It's like a spare tire, um, but it doesn't actually have a place that you would put it, yeah. right? It's, 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 so the, the human body and the human brain has responded to certain environments in a way that's enhanced its survival. But that doesn't mean that it isn't clunky in a lot of ways. You know, when we think of machines generally, we think of opening up your car and every piece under the hood has a role. That's not really true in the brain. In the brain, it's not to say that it isn't always active. It is. You know, you hear people say stupid things like, you only use 10% of your brain. That's not true. But <laughs> yeah, um, that's not true. Yeah, that's not true. But um, the idea that, that, the brain is going to be like an engine. It's just, it's just not that way. You know, it's, it's a piece of, it's a byproduct of nature. Um, you know, so as a result, sometimes we have this primitive brain and now it's living in this contemporary setting and some of its features no longer fit the society that we've built. There's this really interesting effect called the Cinderella effect. And what they were trying to figure out was they were looking at data of, people that have stepfathers in the home, and they realize that you're a lot more likely to die if you grow up in a home with a stepfather. And so, you know, that's pretty scary information at first. Um, but what they found was that, you know, one of the, the evolutionary psychologists, their theory is that, okay, well, look, if you have your own child in the home, you're hardwired by nature to have exquisite safety concerns for your child. So maybe you don't sleep as well because nature has primed you to be, to hover. You know, maybe when your kid runs around the pool and it's your biological child, you're totally tuned in. But if you're a step parent, it's not that you don't care. It's not that you truly don't love that child. It's that nature is not giving you the advantages that it gives to a parent of, of the child who it's biologically related to. And so... The idea is that there's some features of our psychology that we have to learn how to move beyond. You know, it's not good enough to say, well, I'm a step-parent, so he fell in the pool, but nature didn't help me. <laughs> you know, you have to move beyond that and realize, look, I'm not hardwired to provide the same safety instinctively that a biological father might. 
And of course there's plenty of biological fathers who suck at that too. Yeah. But, but the idea is, is there's a lot of features of human psychology that uh, are reflective of primitive environments, primitive survival strategies, and now they're still with us. And it's going to take a long time for those to change. Well, if they even do, I mean, so we're, we've kind of created a society where there's no longer those natural pressures that there used to be, or at least they're different, right? So if you think about evolution in general, it's not that you just have this, you know, I think we think of evolution as advancement and those aren't necessarily the same thing, right? So if you think about um, the fact that, you know, gira you know, giraffes with long necks, well, the reason those are around is because they could reach the taller trees. And if you were a shorter giraffe and there were more of you, there was less food available. So, or if you think about uh, the classic example of uh, there was this explosion of really dark moths in the 19th century in England. And that's because that was during the industrial era. And so there was so much pollution in the air that it, you know, there were, the trees were dirty. And so if you were a predator, you weren't going to see the dirtier moths. And those were the ones that were able to reproduce. Mm. So when we talk about, you know, adjustments in the natural order, we're not necessarily, there's no hand guiding um, natural phenomena towards greater and greater places. It's just nature surviving and changing and surviving and changing. And so whatever pressures exist now, it, there's really no way of knowing what they're going to be. But it's not necessarily true that the pressures that exist now are going to make us better people or better parents. Yeah. And see, that was my misunderstanding of uh, evolution because I originally thought that. I thought it was advancement. And I remember watching a show that was actually talking about it and it was talking about how, in fact, evolution is actually some type of defect actually is created but it benefits that species somehow. And so the people that have that defect are the ones that actually survive, right? Well, think about, um, there's a guy named Robert Trivers, who's an evolutionary psychologist, and he talks about the role of sex in males and how it relates to infidelity. And so what he says is, you know, if you're a male, your best reproductive strategy is going to be to try to have, try to mate with as many females as you can yeah because that that's going to increase the odds that your genes are passed down but that's not an excuse for infidelity at present so it might be that everything is crying out in you and saying have more partners have more partners that that is what you the animal in you is saying but the animal in you can't win out if you want to be in healthy relationships yeah so and, and the other part of that is dopamine is released that's that thing that makes you feel good when you have sex so it's not like people are are saying to themselves okay i'm gonna go out and really just try to spread you know my genes like that's really important to me as a belief like people don't think that way yeah. right they're just doing what feels good and what feels good happens to be what increases a population and so it makes sense that that's the population that exists because it's connected to a mechanism that feels good. So it's not that there's some sovereign hand that's guiding evolution. Yeah. It's that what you happen to find now, there were certain incentives that were in place that increased the odds that that would be so. 
Yeah. And the other thing that he talks about, which is really interesting, is um, the best reproductive strategy for females is to obviously be very choosy about who you mate with and then also to try to keep that person around because you're going to need that person to help you with uh, collecting resources. So there's this natural um, tension that exists between the sexes because for women, the benefit of passing down their genes or the advantage of passing down their genes comes from isolating a male. And for men, the, the best strategy is to not be isolated. And that's pretty much what you see in modern times. So evolutionary psychologists will say, um, there's studies on like jealousy. Obviously jealousy exists in men and women, but evolutionary psychologists will say jealousy is a strategy used to keep men close by to try to, to try to corral uh, a man away from pursuing another relationship. So sometimes you'll meet people who are, will say, look, sometimes I just feel jealous and I don't know why I feel jealous and I trust my boyfriend or I trust my husband and he hasn't done anything, but I just, I feel so jealous and so possessive. Okay. Well, perhaps what we're dealing with is this is a, this is primitive psychology in a contemporary environment. Perhaps, you know, just as for a male who has to tell himself, look, I'm not going to go pursue every sexual impulse I have that for some people it's, it's the same to say, look, my jealousy is not actually in aligned with what's happening in my relationship. And that might be something that my biology and that nature is crying out for me to do, but I have to override that with my contemporary mind. And so where it gets really tricky though, is there's also something that's study called uh, mate poaching, mate poaching. They'll actually study like in other species, how, you know, mates are stolen. And one of the things that reliably happens is in mate poaching, the one of the, you know, so for example, the female will befriend the male who's already in a relationship. And so that's kind of like the first step. And so what happens is you have people that get stuck in this dilemma where they say, well, am I jealous? Unnecessarily so. Or is it that they're recognizing a mate poaching strategy? which is this person is befriending their spouse. And that is the first step into eventually creating a wedge between um, the pre-existing couple. So you have all this primitive psychology that plays out in modern times, and we have explanations for it that aren't always right. But the idea here is that you have primitive psychology that's influencing how you behave. Um, and this could potentially be part of what's happening with uh, anxiety. And also sometimes uh, when you find tumors that are on an amygdala, um, you can you can see how that would even create a more difficult situation. And we can talk more about the specifics. But does that make sense so far? Yeah, I think you just gave a lot of people a lot of things to worry about. Perfect. <laughs> if they weren't worried before, they are now. There's mate poaching going on. We got this outdated amygdala, hasn't been updated in a long time. It's causing all kinds of anxiety, a lot of problems. It's like a flip phone, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, it's worse than that. I feel like it's like a telegraph. Like it's, we're going way back. So you have the amygdala. Now, with the brain, can something that's physically pushing on it 
change it or is it just electrical or is it just chemical or is it a combination? Mm-hmm. So in so, his case, he he has a tumor that's pushing up on it. Now it's a small tumor, so the amygdala is small. The tumor was the size of a pecan, so similar in size. So it must have been pretty much. I mean, if they're about the same size, it must have been right there. So here's the research on the amygdala. Um, so a couple of things. In 1972, there was a female patient who had her amygdala stimulated sounds bad um and she became enraged and demonstrated really threatening behavior and this is the part that really matters that behavior persisted beyond the stimulation of the amygdala uh, like it, it lasted so after they stopped she was still angry yeah had they replaced her skull at this point and put everything back together because i would be <laughs> pissed off too <laughs> I feel like if somebody cuts my head open, starts tickling my brain, I'm also going to be very irritated. Put you, put my head back together. Yeah. So I, I, the idea here though is that you know it's not just that the amygdala, when actively stimulated, creates a problem. It's that even after it's stimulated, people still experience this this surge of rage. Interesting. So a lot of times, you know, when you see people speculating about motives of shooters and things like that you can't rule out brain tumors um you can't rule you know people will say well they just snapped you know and then someone will come around and say they didn't snap they methodically booby trapped their house and then went into a theater and you know killed a bunch of people and it, this was methodical you know so it isn't a mental health problem if it's, if it's methodical is what people will say and i think this kind of research really dispels that notion that you can have a sustained sense of rage um, if you have a tumor affecting this part of your anatomy and you can still be compromised. You know, you, you can still be acting outside of how you might act if you didn't have that tumor, um, but you can have sust- a sustained uh, experience of anger that leads to r- really bad behavioral outcomes. So if he did, in fact, have, if somebody has a tumor in their brain that's that's pressing up against the amygdalas on the amygdala, it's entirely possible that it's going to set them off. I mean, it's going to make them much more aggressive, much more hostile, and they're going to see a lot more threats in the world than they normally would, right? Yeah, in general, that's that's the truth. So if you think about the amygdala and what it's responsible for, it's responsible for assessing threats and responding, right? And this is something that's happening on a primitive level. And so that doesn't mean that you're going to be aware of why you feel the way that you do. Um, but if you were to, theoretically, if, you're, if, if you think about this theoretically, it's theoretically possible, certainly, that people will become more aggressive when they experience stimulation of their amygdala and that it feels totally outside of their control. Now, with the stimulation of the amygdala, would that cause anything like fantasies? Would you fantasize about being violent or acting out or anything? I read some some people that think certainly that it can out. It's not just that it can create uh, aggressive impulses, but that those impulses can be channeled into aggressive ideas. Okay, so somebody might actually start thinking aggressively. 
if that makes sense. So yeah, they're not they're not going to be in traffic one day and they get cut off and then they drag somebody out of the car and beat them. But they might actually start having these fantasies where they're acting aggressive towards people or things. Well, think about, I mean, you you have a unified sense of consciousness. So when you feel a certain way, you then give it an give it an interpretation. You know, yeah. so you have an emotion happens to you and then you tell yourself what it means. And so an emotion can happen to you and you can tell yourself what it means and get it wrong. Story of my life. <laughs> wrong all the time. Every every podcast we find a way to make this about you. Well, about, I feel like it's I it mean, is, yeah. <laughs> it ends up being a therapy session. Thanks, Dr. David. I appreciate you're not it. a doctor and you're welcome. All right. Well, there you go. You're not a doctor. What am I paying you for? You're not paying me. Well, all right then. I guess we <laughs> solved a couple things here. That's interesting. Okay, so um, somebody that does so, th- it's entirely possible that someone like Whitman then, this would be out of the ordinary for someone who has a brain tumor like that if they didn't have the tumor. I mean, we're speculating. We're speculating either way. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, you you can't see. You can't know for sure. I mean, even if, you know, you open the, you open up the brain, you see the tumor pushing against the amygdala, there's limits to what you can, you can speculate about. Um, but I certainly think that you, it's fair game to, to, to wonder, to hypothesize about that sort of thing. Well, let's work with the opposite. Yeah. If, if, is there anybody who could have their amygdala massaged or messed with who wouldn't respond violently? or with anger. I mean, obviously I know that working with negatives makes things substantially harder because you can't prove a negative, but if we were to take, if we were to take a thousand people or 10,000, whatever a significant number is, and we were to touch their amygdala, mess with it, is there a number of them that maybe wouldn't be upset with it or angry or lash out? So the research says this, the amygdala is, uh, is activated when individuals feel afraid or aggressive and when the amygdala is removed in animals, animals express less fear. So when you remove the amygdala in a monkey, oftentimes they're no, they're no longer afraid of snakes. So it does seem to be a focal point for the experience of fear and aggression. And when it's completely removed, those things are also removed. Interesting. Okay. So in anybody that has it, it's going to trigger certain emotions, certain feelings, certain reactions. It seems to be that way. I'm sure there's outliers with everything. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's the other thing I'll say is that we don't really think in terms of with the brain, we don't really think in terms of lobes anymore. Like this lobe is, is completely responsible for this cert, this certain response or this certain emotion. Yeah. We think of the brain in terms of systems. So I like that. Sounds more complicated. Yeah. So Joseph Ledoux, um, he wrote a really great book called The Emotional Brain, um, which he's like, he's in a band called The Amygdalas. He's that kind of nerd. Um, and are they violent or are they scared? <laughs> I don't know. I think if you're a scientist and you have a band called The Amygdalas, you've probably spent more, more time being scared than violent. My guess. But, um, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, imagine walking through the high school, I mean, before he made something of himself. So, um, yeah, I think that that 
you know, there's outliers to everything, but with the amygdala, um, we understand that it's connected to certain systems. And so Joseph Ledoux will say, you know, okay, don't say the amygdala is where your experience of fear is. He'll say fear is a byproduct of something that happens with the amygdala. So, you know, it starts to get complicated and the more precise you are, the deeper you have to go, the more anatomy you have to learn. But I think just in terms of the amygdala, it's what we know is that threat detection and response, and then downstream of that, there's a lot of experience of stress, you know, the, the feelings that come with adrenaline. Um, and that when you remove that, the amygdala and certain animals, they respond very differently as it relates to fear and, and aggression. So somebody, um, like Whitman. Now, I got to be honest, this was the first guy I had some sympathy for. I think he had a very rough childhood in some ways. And then he has this brain tumor. And I think he had a lot of things working against him in his life um, that were not necessarily all his own fault. So despite him being a mass murderer, and I'm not excusing any of his behavior, I actually did feel a little bit for this guy, unlike the other bozos that we've covered. Um, but in somebody in a case like his, I mean, this is obviously an extreme case, but I guess what I'm asking is point blank, can a brain tumor affect someone to the extent that they would murder other people? That's the debate. You know, I, I, I can't definitively answer that. Um, there's plenty of people who say yes. And there's plenty of people who say, I don't think so, but it really, here's the other part of it, Colin it drives you into a more foundational question about free will and determinism. There are, you know, the determinists, the people who say, look, free will is an illusion. You feel like you're choosing one thing over another, but the truth is, is that you're just downstream to a series of causes that you're not really aware of. Those folks would say that every murderer is not really choosing what they're doing. Well, then we couldn't punish him if that were the case. Well, they'll disagree. They'll say there's still a safety risk. They're, they still pose a danger to society, and still, and so you should still quarantine them. Yeah, but, but we quarantine them in an apartment with cable TV and internet so they can hang out. You can't put them in a cage of concrete if it wasn't their fault, right? Well, so, I mean, I guess you could, you could debate that at the level of policy, and, and you would have to be able to talk about, like, what types of conditions increase desirable behavior versus what types of conditions decrease it. Yeah. Um, so not necessarily, but the determinist would say, look, you didn't choose to not have the soul of a psychopath and, and neither did the psychopath. And so if you're the kind of person who enjoys hurting other people, you didn't choose that. And so, you know, the determinists say you can peel back that onion as many times as you want, you know? So they'll say, David, you're saying that you have to overcome your primitive psychology. Well, your ability to overcome your primitive psychology is predicated on the fact that that idea even came to you and that you have the impulse control to do it. And that's not something you chose. So, you know, they'll make the argument what, do you think that human beings are different than other animals? Do you think human beings had choice downloaded into them from some supernatural God? Or is it more likely that human beings are like elephants and they're behaving downstream to natural processes 
and sometimes elephants do damage and it's not because they're um it's not because they're even in in you know really aware of the damage they're doing it's because they're being elephants it's because the husky's being a husky that's why it attacked the poodle so you know the the determinists say you know you really can't say that some um some crimes some murders are fully that person's choice what are the and the free will are. people are going to be on the opposite right well the free the free will people you'll find people who are free will extremists who think that people truly have an endless array of choices there's fewer and fewer of those people um you know one of the things that i heard that kind of pushed me out of that worldview is somebody said you believe in free will can you choose not to have it so you know there's there's well i think you could why couldn't you if you went with just your gut instinct instead of thinking anything out you could like, it, like think about it this way if, if but then you you're overweight your doctor says you need to go on a diet and you have the choice between chocolate cake and a salad and you go yeah i feel like chocolate cake i'm gonna have chocolate cake well you you chose to engage strictly on well i see your point because then you're going back and you still made a choice yeah and you're also talking about like free will from a standpoint of like do you believe that free will exists right yeah if you think that it exists can you choose for it not to exist yeah i see your point so yeah, we're getting real philosophical <laughs> we're losing people so i i um i try to remind myself people don't care about this stuff as much as i do but i you know the people who are uh who have the, I think the most respectable defense on their free will side are people that say, um, of course there are certain things that are predetermined. You know, um, you don't choose the environment you were raised in. You don't choose your genome. Um, in large part, you know, you don't choose many things, but evolution has installed in us an ability to avoid certain issues and problems. And, there's a difference between saying things are predetermined and saying things that things are inevitable. And they would say things are, you have free will and things are not inevitable. And so, you know, then the pre the determinist will come back and say, well, that's only because you know, so they'll come back and start peeling the onion again. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, even if you are a hardcore determinist, I don't think that that takes away the need to have a justice system or to quarantine people or even to punish them because if punishing people increases the odds that they're more safe, if that type of environment shapes the brain to relate to certain desirable behavioral outputs, then that's still something you would want to do. Yeah. There's, there's you wouldn't be able to indulge revenge from a moral place. That's true. So there seems to be a lot on the anti- free will side though right i mean there's some new studies that suggest that we aren't as free as we think we are yeah there's a guy named uh benjamin labette or labay i'm not sure how to say his name um but basically what they did is they hooked participants up to an fmri so that's the technology that you can you know see in live time how the brain is behaving and they asked the person okay i want you to choose a or b and then I want you to tell me when you've decided that you've chosen A or B. And so what they had the person do was indicate the time that they decided either A or B, but then also looked at the brain. 
And what they found is that the brain indicated that the person had chosen or made their choice before the person became aware of it. So the idea is that if your brain is, is making the choice before you become aware of it, how could you possibly be free? Yeah. It's funny. Um, there's a line in the matrix that I always enjoyed. And I think that that's kind of what its point was, is, uh, I, I believe it was Morpheus was telling Neo, you've already made the decision. Now you just need to understand it. And to me, that's what he was suggesting is the decision's been made. It's not that we make the decisions as much as we're just trying to understand now what decision we've made. Yeah, it seems like it's similar. Yeah, the, the, the other upside of determinism is that, and of course, this is just a practical upside. So this has no bearing as to whether it's true or not. But if it is the case, then that's that's really the medicine for arrogance right like you can't possibly be uh you you can't possibly feel better than other people in any real sense if your supremacy is just based in something that's outside of your control if you're really smart that's not something that you chose you know and the same is true with like that they say it's also the antidote for hatred that if somebody is just a seer is acting as the byproduct of, you know, a series of choices that they've made, then that's outside of their control. And so you can quarantine them without hating them. You know, you, you treat them like they're a natural phenomenon the same way you would treat a hurricane. And you say that hurricane was incredibly damaging and destructive, but it, it removes the platform that you need to hate somebody. So, you know, that, that's the other, that's the argument that they'll make. I don't really know. I haven't totally settled on what I think about it. You know, the last like few years for me have been like trying to avoid taking a position on every issue and more like really trying to understand the best version of each position. Um, and I found that that's more confusing, but I've also found it's way more rewarding. Really? Because I feel like I've done the opposite. I'm trying to find a side <laughs> and take one immediately with very few facts. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Welcome to welcome to humanity, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, we've strayed we've strayed quite a bit <laughs> away from Whitman specifically. So I feel like Whitman there's there's an I feel like there's at least um, a decent chance that he was affected. And I think you can make the argument either way. Uh, I think you could if you wanted to say, no, I don't think the tumor played a role. He was abusive towards his wife and he was angry even when he was younger and maybe something in his upbringing, maybe something in his genes. But I don't think that the tumor is what caused him to shoot people. He was always a violent guy and this was just him freaking out. Other people might suggest the opposite and say it's this thing. The amygdala is very small as it is. The tumor itself was probably the same size and it was right on it. So if there's any type of massaging or interacting with or affecting the amygdala this was certainly what was doing it and we know we know for certain scientifically that that's the part that and that controls aggression right so i i honestly personally i don't i don't know how i feel about it i don't know that we could ever know for sure but it's certainly an interesting case and it would be interesting it will be interesting to see the autopsy from the Vegas shooter and see if he had a tumor at all, if he didn't blow it out of his head when he shot himself. Yeah, that stuff fascinates me. And and I also think it's just fascinating to think of it 
even if you don't believe it, you know, taking the thought experiment of, okay, so a tumor on an amygdala can impact certain behavioral outcomes. Well, so can the, the arrangement of a number of other variables within a brain. And maybe it's not just that so-and-so was sick and that led to a certain number of behavioral outcomes. Maybe those negative behavioral outcomes are all related to some anatomical positioning. Um, and that maybe, maybe we're all sick. (laughs) Well, I think that's true anyway. Yeah. You're, you're all sick. (laughs) uh, That's the name of my next podcast. (laughs) You're all sick. You're all sick. Not me. You're all wrong. I'm right. (laughs) Perfect. All right. See, that's a wrap. Um, something else I want to discuss about Whitman that I thought was interesting. Um, he, after he killed his mom, he puts her in bed and covers her. And then after he kills his wife, she was already in bed, but he pulled up the covers to cover her. To me, this almost, I know this is going to sound bizarre, but it almost seemed like he did it lovingly. Like if you were going to, if, if you were going to kill your mom and your wife and you were about to go do this, you were about to go commit a mass murder. Would you really take the time to put someone in bed and cover them nice and neat and leave a note? I mean, I almost feel like he really, when he said he killed them because he didn't want them to have to deal with his aftermath, I almost believe him. It's certainly interesting. You know, that's something that obviously I don't have any way of knowing, you know. I, but I think it's it's always interesting to watch how people respond after they do what they do yeah. and to think about, you know, what might motivate that. Yeah, because to me that was probably one of the more interesting parts of the story because it seems so out of place that this cold-blooded killer is going to take the time to do that. Uh, I thought that was a very interesting part of uh, of the first two murders. Is I, I actually, I feel like I, I do believe him when he says that he wanted to kill them just so they didn't have to deal with it. I mean, I don't agree with him. I think that was still stupid. <laughs> Important but, clarification, Colin. <laughs> yeah, I want to clarify. I'm not saying it was a good thing that he did it, but it's just a very... I actually believe him when he says that. I think... I mean, obviously the guy's disturbed. This, again, goes back to... It wasn't rational. This is not a rational decision, but I do think that he did love and care about his mom and his wife and... He didn't want them to have to deal with the aftermath. And Let me ask you a question. Yeah. So why do you think for you it's easier to believe that he killed his mom and wife while still feeling love for them, but you don't feel that way towards his father? How do you mean? Because, in correct my memory if I'm wrong, um, but I thought I remembered um, from part one, you, you know, his father, you'd said, no, you don't love your family, right? Like if you abuse them, you don't love them. Oh yeah. 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 I see. Yeah. Is there something different here or is it just more like you, you felt just a sense of like, um, empathic closeness with him growing up and his mom? Um, do you see those as different things? 
Well, I guess he never, well, he did abuse his wife too. I don't know. Uh, now that you put it that way, I feel like a dick. No, I'm not trying to make you look a dick. I just think it's, no, I know. it's interesting to think through why we respond in certain ways to certain things. You know, like I, I believe that you can love somebody and treat them really poorly depending on how you define love. Like there are some people who their only understanding of love is their feeling of warmth and affinity for them. Or maybe it's just even like sense of loyalty to them, like an emotional blip of connectedness. But they still can be abusive because they're not able to be motivated by that. Hmm. Now, I don't think that matters to the person who's being victimized. No, I th- yeah, it certainly doesn't. But it's like, I kind of feel like things aren't so black and white. Like, I kind of feel like, sounds horrible, right? It's, I mean, this sounds like a commercial for domestic violence. Like, I do think that in that sense, you can love somebody and abuse them. I just think that that, on that type of love, maybe it just doesn't mean that much. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I'm kind of, I'm still stuck on why. I don't know. I actually would need some time to process because that's a very, I mean, you brought up a very good point. Why wouldn't I feel that way about his dad? Uh, Or why wouldn't I carry over how I felt about his dad to him? Uh, I don't know what the difference is. I mean, obviously he's a lot worse. I mean, clearly. Yeah. Yeah, He did way more damage in the world. Yeah. Significantly more. He cut, I mean, he cut what, 20 lives short, almost 20 lives and significantly harmed other people, gave him post-traumatic stress, I'm sure. I mean, he's a much more violent, dangerous individual, and he took his own life. Part I of think- me might just have some sympathy for him, because mm. I think that the other thing I thought was interesting is he left the note and said, you know, when I die, do an autopsy. Something is wrong with me. Yeah. Like, he knew something was wrong. There's not a lot of killers that would say something like that. You, you know? saw something reflective in him. What's that? You saw something reflective in him. Yeah. Like something something conflicted and something he was reflecting on feeling conflicted and feeling torn up about something. Yeah, because he didn't write about it like, you, you know, you take somebody like the Columbine shooters. They were happy. They were excited. They made these videos and talked about how it was just going to be the most amazing thing to to ruin these lives and take these lives. He never did that. He he talked about how he could do it and he talked about the tower and he talked to his therapist about the, the fantasy he was having, but he didn't necessarily glorify it in his letters. And he saw that there was something wrong. He obviously knew there was something wrong. He flat out knew something's wrong with me. Hmm. The other thing moving on, uh, that I thought was interesting and I'm sure that therapy has changed in the 50 years since this happened. Um, Oh, was it? Oh, actually, it might have been like 60 years now. Uh, I love that when I say I love, I find it humorous in a sick way that <laughs> he goes to the psychiatrist and tells this dude all of this stuff. I want to go on this tower and shoot these people. Uh, I really I'm feeling pretty bad. I've already got plans. I got this and that. And the psychiatrist was like, yeah, just come back. See me next week. You know, you're good. Don't worry about it. Just fantasy. I feel like today if you went to a therapist and you said, yeah, I've got plans to do this or I've thought a lot about it, I don't think it would get brushed off so easily. 
Yeah, that's interesting. We can talk about that too. I mean, I did those evaluations for a while, assessing violence and suicide. Um, but the basic part of it is this. You can have a homicidal thought. At least this is the way it is in Colorado. You can have a homicidal thought, and so long as you don't have any any intent, then you're, you don't warrant being hospitalized. How do you differentiate between intent and plans? So like, they're different. Like, so if you have an intention to do something, but you don't have a plan, that's one safety risk. It's still very serious. Yeah. If you have an intent and a plan, that's even worse. If you have an intent, a plan, and a means, then you really got a problem. And even if you have somebody that has intent and their plan sucks, like, um, you know, it's something that you don't think, like, let's say somebody says, well, I'm going to pick up a pencil and I'm going to stab them and give them lead poisoning. And you know, well, that's not going to give them lead poisoning, right? It's, first of all, it's yeah, graphite. It's graphite, idiot. We learned that in elementary school. Yeah, Ticonderogas. So even if that's how you even if his plan wouldn't achieve his outcome, that's still the same safety risk is if he had a good plan. Because if he believes it's a good plan, you're in the same place psychologically. Hmm. You might not have the same safety. I mean, you might not have the same safety risk in one standpoint, but from an evaluative standpoint, you're in a mindset to kill. So... Maybe you try the graphite and that doesn't work and then a better idea comes to you. Yeah. So for someone like, for if someone came in and said, I have these fantasies of shooting these people, um, it wouldn't get so dismissed, but it would depend on the language they use, right? Because if they if said, they well, said, I have these fantasies. Well, if they said, I've had these thoughts of, of, hurting people and I'm not going to do it and it's really disturbing me and I don't know why I'm having these thoughts then you're not going to that person's not going to get hospitalized yeah because they're reporting like they're just experiencing these thoughts if somebody says I'm having these thoughts of hurting somebody well the next question as an evaluator is do you do you feel tempted by those thoughts yeah and the way that I would phrase it like that do you feel tempted is because it allows somebody to even speak in a small sense as to whether they do you're not asking, are you going to do it, right? You're asking, do you find your will bending in that way? And if they say, yeah, even in a small way, well, then that's, that's you have to report that. Yeah. That, that's a mandatory reporting situation. I wonder if that, uh, it would be interesting if there, those were, I mean, taped. I'm sure that they weren't. I would just be curious as, uh, I'd be curious as to if that psychiatrist asked him, anything like that and what his answer was because from my understanding from my research he was extremely open and honest with that psychiatrist about everything his hate for his dad the tower his troubles in life his battles everything so it's very interesting yeah yeah and i think also there's a difference between saying i want to hurt people and then also drawing out how you would do it and if you're drawing out how you would do it you're talking about a plan. Yeah, and I, I think his was clearly a plan. You can call it a fantasy, but I feel like a fantasy in a lot of ways is, is you playing with the plan. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's always a case-by-case 
person, you know, everybody's different, but I think it's, it's, you can have ideation and it's not a mandatory reporting situation. The same is true. Like if somebody comes in and feels suicidal and they go, man, I don't know why I've been having these thoughts of suicide cross my mind. Yeah. And then if you say, well, do you feel tempted by those? No, it's really disturbing. Okay. You know, that's fine. There's no, there's nothing to report there. Yeah. See, I'd be like, well, it depends on the day. What is it? Tuesday? Eh, I'm going to leave it. Then maybe I, I would probably move forward then. I'd be like, well, that's not really reassuring me. <laughs> wow, really? That quick? Uh, if somebody said I move in and out of feeling tempted to take my life, that's a mandatory reporting situation. See, a uh, pro tip for you guys out there. If you're ever going to hurt yourself, don't Stop tell anybody. It. Don't, 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 don't tell anybody. Stop it. You're going to go to the loony bin. <laughs> if you're going to hurt someone else, tell everybody. <laughs> because then you're going to get locked up. We That's what we want to stop. How about tell everybody either way? Eh, well, you know, you're not really qualified to say that on the show. <laughs> I feel like I'm a lot more qualified to give this kind of advice. Because what? So what you're saying about this guy, all right, so you're saying Whitman did nothing wrong, it was all the tumor, and that's a wrap for this guy, right? That's the that, final no. thing. All no, right. I'm not that's, saying that. That's David's thing. I'm speaking Interesting. in general. I'm not diagnosing or, or weighing in on yeah. characteristics. No, I got you. <laughs> um, he's a very interesting case, though. And I think there was a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting stuff. Very tragic end for everybody involved. I mean, yeah. it was really just there was there's no bright side. Can I say one more thing too? That you said something that kind of sparked a thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I might have mentioned this on another episode, but I think this is really important in understanding violent acts and people who commit violent acts. Is that you might find yourself feeling sympathy for these people. You might find yourself liking them when you meet them. And it's because we never expect to feel sympathy and it's because we never expect to like them that oftentimes these people are able to follow through with what they do. They don't hit our radar because we have this preconceived expectation that killers are people that we would hate. They're people that would make the hair stand up on the back of our neck. They're people that we would identify as villains. They're people that we wouldn't feel close with. We could never laugh with. We could never enjoy. And the truth is that people who kill are people too. And sometimes you have your, you know, psychopath type, right? Who has a very hollow inner life and doesn't feel for people. But a lot of these people that, that we feel that do these things, if you met them, if you knew them, um, you might be surprised that they're not who you thought you were going to meet. That that people have a way of of being people that commit these these crimes have a way of being very human one moment and then horrifying in the next. And so I, I just think that, you know, when you were talking about feeling something for him. I think that that's just very honest, and I think that that's very typical of like many mental health professionals when they work in in prisons or in other facilities where you're working with violent offenders is that you plan on meeting the devil and you just meet a guy named Frank, right, or Steve or whatever, <laughs> Frank, right? But yeah. some some dude that you meet him, and he's he's nice. He's warm. He shakes your hand. He yeah. has a conflicted childhood. He has a great sense of humor. 
and you look at what he did and you don't understand how the person you're looking at did what you know that he did. And then the mistake that's often made is that people side with the human connection that they experience and they don't see that when this person deviates from that place, the damage is incredible. Yeah. And, and it's not that you run into this cartoonish form of evil. It's that you run into people who, when they deviate, are capable of, of worse things than the rest of us. Yeah, and maybe his was, you know, I mean, the guy's like Mr. America, youngest Eagle Scout ever, exemplary Marine. Uh, everybody liked him, very personable. I mean, he wasn't like anybody else we've covered so far. You got stupid idiot Luca, who's just a goofball clown. Nobody really takes this dude seriously. You got McDaniel, who's sideshow bobbing it up in his own room, just total loner. And then you got Sagawa. I don't even know where to start with that idiot. But this dude was like the exact opposite of all of them. There's no, I mean, if you had looked at this dude five years before he committed it, even one probably, there's no way you would have thought, oh, yeah, this dude's going to, he's going to kill a bunch of people. So I think that's exactly right. He's all too human. And maybe that's why, I, I mean, I saw his Boy Scout picture and I saw him as a kid. And I don't know, maybe I just, I did feel something for him. Because I was like, man, how, why would you do this? What happened to you? I never felt that way with the other guys. And, and the reason I bring that up too is like, I think from a standpoint of our own safety in the world, it's acknowledging that emotion when you have it of closeness, of affinity, of understanding, of maybe like even empathy, but then also putting that in its place, you know, and, and managing it and realizing that you, when you're dealing with somebody that is violent, that there's no amount of positive experiences that you can have that will protect you from that person yeah. when they decide to be somebody else. And that's the other thing that you know, a lot of mental health clinicians run into as a problem is they think they build this really uh, this relationship with the offender that is unlike any relationship the offenders ever had, a special relationship. And this person has told me everything about them. And this person has cried with me and this person would never hurt me. And then oftentimes they end up being victimized because they put themselves in a threatening situation with the offender. And whether it's because that was a part of the plan all along or it's because the offender is built in such a way that in one moment he can experience very sincere relationships and in the next he just doesn't give a damn. Yeah. Well, that's you know? how you get compromised. Don't well, yeah. trust anyone ever. Yeah. I, I think it would be fun to talk about um, jail prison dynamics too yeah uh, at some point but Definitely. but i think that's the other thing too is that if you know somebody like this and, and that's the classic reason why people get back into domestic violence relationships if you really knew him you know he cried he felt so bad right well no, i believe i, he, I believe he meant it i believe he meant it in that moment i just don't believe that matters or i don't believe that matters most yeah so all right i think that's it for whitman 
I think uh, we can never know, really, with this guy. And there's not a lot else to say um, about him. Or there's there's no diagnosed mental illness or anything. He wasn't around and were in therapy long enough to really know outside of some of the issues he might have had with his dad, maybe some depression and anxiety, some basic stuff. But I think that the tumor might have played a bigger role, just generally speaking. Um, but I do want to have kind of a new segment where we have listener questions from the previous criminal. Um, so while we get that kind of launched, I've got one question for you. Uh, feel free. I'm going to read the question exactly as they posted it. Yeah. And then you can just remove the Sagawa. In this case, you can just remove him and answer it generally since you can't speak to him. Okay. Yeah. I'll try to identify what the foundational question is. All right. So it says question for David. Now, sorry, let me back up. So this is from Cassie and Cassie says question for David. I just listened to the second episode about Sagawa. Could he have a new form of combined paraphilia and cannibalism? Something like autoerotic cannibalism? I know autoerotic is supposed to be mostly internal, but there has to be more to it than just, he's a sick fuck. I think that (laughs) might have been what I said. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, quoting me. That's the the best quote you could have got. That's for sure. That's that's great. Um, So I think maybe I would pose the question this way or one of the things I would just start to say is that with these types of crimes and with crimes that fall outside the bell curve, you're not going to find mainstream diagnoses available most of the time. So sometimes you're going to have in the DSM, a diagnosis that covers most of the symptoms, but not all of them. And that's still the diagnosis that somebody would uh, qualify for. So, you know, part of the reason that you're not going to have a diagnosis that covers every single symptom is because the sample sizes are so small. These are, you know, it's a very small subset of, of offenders. I would say the most important thing from a clinical aspect is not really what the diagnosis is called so much as what the relevant symptoms are. And so as a clinician, you're going to target each one of those symptoms generally. Um, But in terms of how you categorize it in your mind, you might not find something in the DSM that perfectly fits what somebody is doing. You know, you could, if you can think of, any, if you can think of any nefarious human behavior and pair it with any other nefarious human behavior, you can feel pretty confident that somebody has tried it somewhere. But that doesn't mean that there's going to be a, a diagnostic category that covers those behaviors. So I think you know, the other thing that happens with the DSM is there's always this conflict um, between having high diagnostic standards and wanting the diagnostic standards to be lax enough that people get the help that they need. So like with something with depression, the more you lax the standards, the more people can get help through their insurance companies, but also the more you lax the standards, um, 
the less definite your talk. I mean, the what you're dealing with becomes less precise. So there's always this conflict between wanting diagnostic criteria to be open enough that people can get help, but specific enough that it's research based. Um, and so when you have something that's a very deviant behavior that comes in strange combinations, you might not find something like that in the DSM. You just find something that's close. And what really matters is not what to call it. It's what to do about it if something can be done. Or you just call it what I call it. You're a sick <laughs> fuck. Cassie, don't it. listen to him. That's it. That's the only <laughs> that's the only diagnosis there is for this guy. There's no there's nothing else. Okay. There's nothing the sample size is one. Sagawa. And that's it. That's how you know. When there's when the sample size here, let's let's make a rule. When the sample size is less than a hundred, you're fucked. <laughs> that's it. Like if you do something and you can't find a hundred other people that do it too, there is no diagnosis for you. Okay? You're sick and you need help. And that help is in a cage somewhere far away from everyone else. Because I don't try well, if it affects anybody. If you like to do weird stuff in your in your house and you're not affecting anybody, I don't care about that. There's no diagnosis for it, but there's no problem with it. You do whatever you want to do. I don't care. But as soon as you start eating people, we got a problem. We can't have that. We can't just have cannibals walking around eating people. That's not okay. So that's that's the real diagnosis for him. So we don't need to fancy it up. We just you're fucked. That's it. And we move on. And we yeah. lock this clown up. He's out walking around right now. He's probably eating dinner as we speak. <laughs> Hopefully not a person. We don't know. It's Japan. <laughs> I don't know what that's supposed to mean. I don't either. Uh, oh, I'm going to cut that out. Gonna, I don't think you should. Japan, I love you. If there's yeah. any Japanese listeners, much love. <laughs> I, love the, I love the country of Japan. I'm just disappointed that you don't lock cannibals up. That's all. All right. Is there anything else, David? No. I, good talk, man. Good talk. Again, thank you for all of your book readings and learnings and your different stuff that you taught them. You didn't teach me anything. I know everything. <laughs> but you taught them a lot. You've made that clear. Are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? Dunning-Kruger. Yeah. No. I know maybe, Freddy Krueger. Maybe this is nobody a good place to leave it in reference to what you just said. Yeah. So um, the Dunning-Kruger effect basically says that those who are the most conflicted and humble are often the smartest, and those who are the least conflicted and cocksure are often the least intelligent. Well, which one am I? I'm cocksure. I You've been talking about how you're the smartest guy all podcast. Smartest. Easily. Smartest. Well, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't really think there's, I mean, come on. Come yeah. On. Come on. So I don't know. I don't induct what you'd like or, or, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I'm, dude, come on. I mean, just come on. Like, I'm so, I'm so smart. I'm just like, you're wasting my time right now. I got. Yeah. I one time won a chess tournament in seventh grade. Whoa! I mean, I was handling business even back then. I didn't. I got eliminated from a spelling bee when I was in sixth grade because Gwen Stefani had not written the song "Bananas" yet or whatever. I misspelled banana. You if misspelled Stefani, banana in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If Gwen Stefani had written that song, I would have been fine. Why you know a song called "Bananas"? By Gwen Stefani. I don't know if that's actually what it's called, but you know the you know what song I'm talking about. No, I don't. I don't know what song you're talking about. <laughs> and even if I did, I wouldn't be dumb enough to tell everybody that I know a song about bananas. Yeah, but actually, I wouldn't go down that road. Uh, do you remember a long time ago when I secretly recorded you singing? Daughtry? 
Yeah, I found those videos. So well, don't release those. <laughs> Daughtry's still my boy, though. I'm not ashamed. Okay. Even well. the smartest man around has to have something. And that's a wrap. This was a very long episode, and David and I went a little bit more in depth into some issues. So let us know what you think. If you enjoyed our show, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at guilty underscore podcast on Twitter, at guilty podcast on Facebook, and you can shoot us an email, guiltypodcast at yahoo.com. So this is Colin for David saying, don't tickle your amygdala. <laughs>